day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Actually, I guess I'll, I want to start with that in Haggai 2. Got a couple of things today that I realize that I am generally loath to talk about. Don't want to talk about them, seldom do, but I think it might be needful today and be helpful to us all if it is done that way. But let's start out then in Haggai chapter 2. Well, chapter 1 uh, was introduced in the second year of Cyrus, says Darius, but it's Cyrus the son of Ahasuerus, uh, in the sixth month in the first day, which is in the autumn. But uh, chapter 2 goes into the seventh month, the 21st day. And in the heavenly calendar, that is today. This was a message that was delivered on the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I don't think that the main part of this message refers to this year. I think it's uh, in the very near future. could possibly be next year. But the message that is here, I, I want to go over very quickly with you, because since it was delivered today, I think that it has an applicable uh, thing for us. He said, Speak to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, the high priest, and to the residue of the people. Now, we are not yet the residue or the remnant, the 10%, but I think we are some called ahead of time for a particular job or jobs. So, he's speaking to us among those who will come at a soon date. He says, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? So we, are, we have reached the time in history, or in prophecy, if you will, where these words are applicable. And he's talking to people who are alive now and who have been alive for quite some time in human terms. And this is very near to being the year that this applies all the way through. So he's talking to some people here that are gray and bald and whatnot. Today, right now. He says, be strong, Zerubbabel and Joshua uh, and, the pre and the people. Be strong, all you people, and work. So two of the things of advice he gives us here, he mentions in Zephaniah and other places. According to this word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Mitzrayim, so my spirit remains among you, fear you not. So be strong, work, don't fear. Another place it says be of good courage. But those three are right here together. <coughs> For thus says the Eternal of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. So he's talking about end-time horrors that are about to come upon the world. All nations will be shaken, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. Now this book is about the rebuilding of the temple, of course. We understand that. And he will fill it with his glory. He says, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Eternal of hosts. 
What silver? What gold? Well, you have to go back to uh, Isaiah 44 and 45 to get this spelled out plainly. But there he's talking to the end-time work, and I'll show that to you down the road some. And he says he is going to reveal to Osiris. Now, this book was written during the second year of Cyrus the king, who took over from uh, Nebuchadnezzar when Babylon fell. So, he has an end-time Cyrus, who he says he's going to reveal the hidden treasures of God, the hidden riches to, here in the end time. So, this has to be the silver and the gold that he is about to produce. And he says it isn't anybody's but his. Okay? The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Eternal of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of hosts. So when he begins this effort to rebuild the temple, and he provides the things to do it with, both physically and spiritually, uh, gold and silver isn't just physical metal, it's also true doctrine and truth and all those spiritual things as well that he gives. And those are his doctrines. That's his truth. These prophecies are from God, about God, and about those who will do his work. So I wanted to put us in mind of that, especially since it was delivered on this very day, uh, of what is in the future. Now yesterday we talked about our calling And I stated, to perhaps a little bit of shock, that there is a new calling. That the old calling is in much, well, part of it is dead. Now the fact that he called us all in his time toward salvation, that calling is still there and will always remain. Until we either die or in the resurrection. That, That one doesn't go away. But let me say it was, we were also called under Herbert Armstrong to do a work. And that work that he was called to do, and we with him, is complete. And then that church, that organization, simply died. And the remnants of it were scattered all over. And as I showed you, We've become eunuchs in Babylon, powerless to produce anything. Or a dry tree, or whatever analogy, God uses several, to show that there's nothing left. (laughs) Nothing that's viable or usable or productive. Nothing can be done. So we've had a period of time here where really nothing has been accomplished toward the kingdom of God except one thing. That is to try us, to test us, to allow us to be confused, to allow us to go through all kinds of things to see who will be faithful and strong and true to him and not give up and be ready to do the final work. And as he reveals what needs to be done... 
and does some signs and wonders, as we shall see, to get people's attention on what Christ is about to do, not you, me, or anybody else, but Christ himself. Then they will come and do what we just read about, build the temple of God. So, that is a whole new work, and there's a whole lot more to it than just that. I'm going to give you some points. I don't know whether I'll get to it today or not now, but some points about what has to be done. Now, I told you we have a new calling. Well, we need to understand our calling, and it is the last calling of this age before Christ returns. It will culminate in his return. So there is a lot to be done. And if we're going to be a part of it, and I hope we are, then we better know what needs to be done, how it's to be done, where it's to be done, who's going to do it, and all those things. You see, Herbert Armstrong knew only enough to get done what God wanted him to accomplish. And even let him labor under some of the things that would be done after him that he thought he was to do. Because he didn't understand that there was to be his work and then another work. I can see how he would have thought, well, it's the end time, so I'm the one called to understand this and start the work, so I must be going to complete it. Well, he didn't understand at all that there were two phases. He told me in 1981 that he was a rubber bell. And I thought, oh, okay. But I went home and I began to study Haggai and Zechariah very intensely and gave a sermon on that. I think I still have the tape somewhere uh, in Helen and Great Falls saying that he was a rubber bell. He would do the end time work. Well, as I look back now, uh, 30 years later or more, um, yeah, more. I can understand how he was a type, because he did build an end-time temple. But he wasn't the final one. Sometimes prophecies are repeated many times before you get to the final and end-time fulfillment. So, yes, I believe he was right. He was a type of Zerubbabel building a temple in the end, and I can understand why he thought that was the end of it. But he didn't grasp that Haggai's talking about two different ones. Former and the latter. He thought that the former was Herod's temple, and he was here to build the latter. But he didn't focus on the whole story, and I don't think God wanted him to, because there ain't anybody here, I don't care how you look, who was there when Herod's temple was built. <laughs> you were here when the work under Herbert Armstrong was built, some of you. And you can compare what is about to be built, because it's going to be very shortly and within the lifetimes of most of us here. I hope all of us. Now, I'm going to interject something here. It's a sidelight from that. I was going to do it as an announcement, but I thought, well, I want to read this here about today first. And I can interject this, because... It, in a way, is part of the work that we're doing today, and it's something that I generally am loath to talk about. You may remember 
you old heads back in Worldwide, there was an awful lot of talk about money. Uh, there was an awful lot of, or an awful lot of co-worker letters that went out that encouraged us to send all we could when we could. And I remember even in early part of my ministry in Miami, when did that come out? 68, 69, somewhere along there. A letter from Pasadena that said we are here for the final push of the work and you should sell your house, you should fill your credit cards up, you should sell everything you've got and send everything into Pasadena so we can finish the work. That had to have been 68, somewhere right along there. Because 72 was coming soon and they thought Christ, I mean the tribulation would start by then and this would all be over. So the pressure was to get that done. I don't think Herbert Armstrong was behind that letter. Uh, well, maybe he wrote it. I think it was Rod Meredith, though. That's the way it... They have memories, you never know. Uh, but anyway, it came from Pasadena. And I remember thinking, that doesn't sound logical. doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like this is the time when that ought to be done. Now, yes, there came that time in Jerusalem back here in the book of Acts where they did say, hey, we better pool our resources uh, because we're going to starve. But nobody was about to starve then. And I had begun to think uh, we didn't understand the timing of prophecy right. So instead of reading that letter, I put it on the back of my desk and left it. I'm not going to read that this weekend. <laughs> I'm going to wait a while. So over a period of time then, uh, we got another letter that says, well, maybe it wasn't quite time to do all that. And I thought, well, good. Tore it up and threw it away. I never did read it to the church. But a lot of people did, and a lot of people began putting their houses up for sale and a lot of things that went on. So... You remember all those co-worker letters, send, 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 and you remember going to the feast, and uh, they had competition between the feast areas to see who could give the biggest offerings, and they wanted, uh, oh, they made it ridiculous. Uh, you, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, and those things were read, so you smile as you give. But I always thought, you know, God says, to bring that which you have, that which you can give, and that which you can appreciate and be thankful you're able to give, was the way I saw that. And I know that people in the church would pray before God, before they ever came to the feast, about what they could afford to give. And some gave very substantial offerings, and some gave until it hurt. Not just, you know, my extra. There were uh, widows with their mites within the church who gave all they could give. But then you'd get to the feast having prayed about it and prepared an offering to bring before God, and then somebody would say, okay, that was the what you brought, but we need more. And this congregation over here is going to beat us, so let's have a competition. 
So now you put in, you're about to put in this much. Well, let's have a silent offering now. Put in your bills that you got in your wallet. And I remember then that there was one they wanted a loud offering. Now empty your pockets and put all your change in. Uh, ridiculous. And I did not like that culture. I did not think it was godly. I thought it was competitive and of man. It wasn't the kind of offering that God expected his people to bring, and they shouldn't have been under that kind of pressure because you brought what you thought you could thankfully give. And then somebody made you feel ashamed for bringing that much and made you feel bad that you couldn't bring more and tried to wring out what you did have left. I just think it's totally wrong. So when this little group began, I said very little about money, and I've said very little about it since. Some of you who've been around since the very beginning know that. And you who've only been here five, six, seven, eight, ten years also know that. Usually the the closest thing I'll make to it is to tell you where the offering box is, in case you didn't see it. But that and I don't do that all the time. Didn't this piece, didn't think of it, didn't care. Somebody else usually has to get the box out. I don't usually do it even that much myself. And I don't count the offerings on the holy day when they're given. Uh, I always thought that was so wrong to get all the deacons and elders so they can't even hear the sermon, maybe, while they go out and count the money so we can see if we beat Alaska or beat Pasadena or shit. And it didn't change the amount of the offering by one penny whether it was counted today or tomorrow. So why bother with count money on the Sabbath? Anyway, those are my pet gripes. So I'm loath to talk about money, and I very rarely do. Uh, I do want to point out one thing, though, today especially, uh, and that is in terms of second tithe. Some have wondered, what do I do with that? We remember this, this situation in Worldwide where we were all asked to send in 10% of our second tithe. Tithe of the tithe, it was called. That meant, that's mentioned in here in terms of the Levites because they were to receive the tithes. And tithe of the tithe in that day was that they were to in turn give 10% of that which was given to them to live on back to God. So that everybody was living that principle of a tenth to God. Uh, they received tithes, but they only took 10% of that, just as you take 10% of what you earn and give it to God, they were to take 10% of the tithe and give it back to God for temple use, whatever. It didn't really specify what. But the entire government of the church worked on 10%, basically, plus offerings. Uh, so Herbert Armstrong instituted the tithe of the tithe because we're instructed there in Deuteronomy 12 and 14 uh, to save up the second tithe, we know it was the second tenth because of the use that was given. The first tenth went to the priests, the Levites, for the use of the church and their own living because they didn't have land given to them uh, by Joshua. Uh, all the other tribes did. So they were to live off of it as well as use it for the government. 
And then by usage, we call it second. It could have been an ABC, but we call it first, second, third. Uh, you were to bind it up, not give it to the Levites, but to take it to the feast. And if it was too far for you to drive animals there, uh, you turned it into money, and then you went and bought what you needed for the feast. So by usage, it was another uh, tithe. Well, it also says there to take care of the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the Levite, and says, do not forget the Levite all the late days of your lives, that they were to take care of them. Now, we don't have a big ministry here, but what they did with the tithe of the tithe, and then he said at some point, if you had money left over at the end of the feast, you could use it as an offering, or turning it as excess second tithe and label it as such, uh, so that if there were needs, they'd be there to cover it. Now, it got out of balance there, too, because the ministry got nicer accommodations than the widows, and I think that that was a travesty. The widows should have had as good as, if not better, than where the ministry was staying. So I think they misused it in that sense. But nonetheless, it was there to be used for those purposes and used in a right way for that. So we've, I've not laid that on you, but uh, I was thinking of Nelson here recently. He's an elder, and in the ministry, you didn't keep second tithe because you were eligible for second tithe in the full-time ministry. So they kept our salary lower and gave us second tithe. They didn't have us turn in second tithe because it would be there because everybody was told to use it to take care of certain categories of people. So uh, they paid for our motel rooms and paid for our food while we were there and they didn't save it. But the local church elders were required, like everyone else, since they weren't full-time in the ministry, to save their second tithe out to take care of themselves. Now, I don't know how much benefit they got here and there from that, but uh, I was thinking somewhat in Nelson's category. Uh, he's a local church elder, uh, isn't full-time in the ministry, never was. And uh, he tithed on his gross, as I understand, for all those decades, not on his net. And therefore, when he receives his Social Security check, that increase was tithed on when he earned it. So he doesn't owe tithe on it now, although he does tithe on something, I don't know what, but he gives some anyway. But he doesn't have any second tithe. So there, if we had people turning in a tithe of their tithe or their excess second tithe, then I could look at him and say, uh, you know, I know you don't have second tithe. Here, use this for the feast. Uh, and somebody even mentioned giving him some this year. I, I never did know that it happened, but uh, it was mentioned. I never got it to give to him, in other words. So, uh, and I don't have second tithe. Now, I don't have many expenses. We're meeting here at my house, and I eat food you bring for the most part, and I don't need to go out to eat. Uh, the electric bill goes up, and the gas bill goes up, and such as that, but I don't need my second tithe, so I've never said anything about it. 
but but I heard a, a whisper, not a whisper, but a, a word or two that, well, what am I going to do with all this money? And I, I couldn't spend it all on things that the Bible says I should. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do something else? No, you can turn it in. Uh, you can even label it that. Because I know that there were some people who were thinking of coming here to the feast this year who are on Social Security, didn't have money to get here. So I didn't have any excess second tithe in the account to send them. So I asked a couple of people, you know, do you have enough tithe that you might help them get here? Well, turns out uh, they have some disagreements on some doctrines and they're getting old and their car's old and they decided to go to a, a different feast site nearer so I didn't need it for them. But I have helped them out two or three times in the past to come here. And if we had it here, instead of me having to go beg somebody, <laughs> well, just ask, uh, you know, could, could you spare some? It would be nice if we had some maybe left over from the previous feast or tithe of the tithe, if you wanted to do it that way, uh, to turn in and it's labeled so then I know I have this here and if somebody needs it or a widow needs it or there's a need, then... I don't have to go around and ask and try to find some. There's some here that could be used. So if you keep the feast well, you have plenty of whatever your heart desires. Uh, he says strong drink and food and so on, travel, accommodations, whatever. Uh, once you cover those things and then you're looking around, uh, what do you do? Give it to Salvation Army or spend it or you know, on whatever you can find? Or do you possibly think of the elders, the ministry, who are not in the position necessarily to be saving it, uh, and turn it in for use? So I think that... I, I mentioned this just briefly a couple, three years ago, I think, but nobody seemed to hear me, or forgot it, or whatever. Uh, but I thought I'd kind of make a point of it... Uh, because that responsibility is there upon the membership to be sure everybody's taken care of, okay? <coughs> Whether it's widow or stranger or the ministry or whoever, there is a responsibility. And we should shoulder that and be sure that if we have excess or whatever, uh, that we remember that rather than just trying to find a way to spend it. Uh and as far as finances are concerned, I don't mention these things hardly ever, uh, but what do we do? <laughs> uh, I'm going to show you that I think God caused us to come here and even brought us to this place. And uh, there's been a lot of money. A lot of people think I've gotten rich, made two, three million dollars off this little place. Uh, you know, people are... They've got a lease for $100, and about 75 of that goes toward the mortgage, and the rest is pump maintenance and road maintenance and whatever else. And we all you always have used more than the lease required. So it's come out of tithes and offerings to do the work. Uh, the building over here, that, that was tithes and offerings. Uh, all that we've done to develop this place, the water system, everything, was tithes and offerings. It wasn't going in my pocket. 
And I, I want you to understand that. And in fact, Marla and I, not to pat ourselves on the back, but we had some assets when we got here. And uh, Marla's not here to attest to it, but when this matter came up, she said, I wrote the check. <clears throat> we sold our house in Colorado, and we were anticipating a lot of people coming, and still are. Been some delay, just like in Ezra's day. They were going to build a temple, and the enemies got in the way, and it was delayed about 17 years before it actually got done, finally. So, uh, we've been given these grain silos that we had out here, still one out there, and uh, Marla wrote a check for over $30,000 to fill those with corn and wheat so we'd have it here when people came. Over the years, we didn't really know how to properly take care of it. and got bugs in it and so on. And uh, Yeah, still edible, but not as appetizing as, you know, it would have kept us alive. So it wound up being used for goat and cattle feed and whatever. And then I hear just last year, I sold a lot of it to someone to uh, feed to the cattle. So it's gone. But there's still dozens of barrels over in the church hall of wheat and beans and corn and things that, we bought, part of it we brought here and part of it we bought after we got here to put in storage. And last time I checked it, that that was in the barrels and bagged is, is still okay, and I hope it still is. So we put in quite a little here uh, of our own. And even the wells that we drilled, the first two we drilled out of tithes and offerings. And the guy was a charlatan and didn't do the wells right, and one completely caved in. And the other one became useless as well. So I had traded, sold and traded, our house in Alaska and several properties we owned up there uh, and took gemstones in return for a lot of it, sapphires and rubies and various uh, precious stones. So I knew a guy that drilled wells, and I traded him $40,000 worth of gemstones to drill five wells here. They didn't come out of tithes or offerings. They came out of Marla's in my house in Alaska and other buildings we had there. So we were willing to contribute the assets which we had. And some of those assets I still have, uh, various kinds. And I'll tell you about that, some of it, a little later on. And I still don't live entirely off of tithes and offerings. Most of it goes back into what we're doing here. And I still have some assets that I can call on when I need something in specific, whatever. Uh, I've got a five-year-old car and a 30-year-old Suburban and you know various vehicles around here. But when I bought that car, it wasn't tithes and offerings. It was my own assets that got it. So uh, I don't have to have a new car every year, two or three, and I'm not trying to live high on the hog here. I, I just want you to know that. And we have a lot coming up. Now, we have trouble here on the property. Now, one reason I got getting into this is because I've had some of you either buy a house out here and are thinking of moving out sometime in the future. 
And just recently I had people say, well, we might want to move out there. Well, I'm going to do my best to discourage you today. <laughs> Not really. Uh, but you might as well know the situation. If you're thinking of moving here, you need to know what's going on. Okay? You need to be able to make a decision based on a lot of facts and a lot of, of knowing what's going on. I just turned to a scripture this morning, in fact, in Isaiah 10. We'll turn back there and we'll look at that. We named this place Anatoth, or I did, uh, because Jeremiah was told to go buy a field. And I thought, well, that's appropriate. Uh, God told us to move to the wilderness, and we needed a place. And the word Anatoth in the Hebrew means answer. And I felt like, this was the answer. So named it Anatoth. Now there are other things about Anatoth in here that aren't too too whippy. But I wasn't focusing on those at the time. I was just focusing on him buying a field in Anatoth. And that was the answer that God had given him. Well here in Isaiah 10, it's been talking about, this is one I was telling you about the other day, uh, where the Assyrians going to kind of try to do something to us, 10.24. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, that would be us, be not afraid of the Assyrian. Don't be afraid. He shall smite you with a rod and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Mitzrayim. We know this nation is going to be taken into slavery. And since we're here, he's going to come against us and try to do the same thing with us he's doing with the rest of the nation. But he said, don't fear him. He'll come. He'll smite you. He'll try to make slaves out of you. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. And he tells us, after telling us to come out here in Micah 4, there in Micah 5, which I cited to you, that seven, even eight principal men will go out against the Assyrian and send them packing. So they'll be destroyed. Anyway, that's sort of the context here. And in verse 30 it says, Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galen. Cause it to be heard unto Laish, O poor Anatoth. <laughs> so here we are today, O poor Anatoth. Now there's one of the issues that we have financially, is that some of the people here have decided, I should not be the minister, and shouldn't be in the ministry probably, period, and so on and so forth. And uh, they started withholding their lease payments and so on and have been trying to take over this property. And they file lawsuits, uh, and there's still one active, and uh, we're having to pay the lawyer, and that is not cheap. If you've ever had anything to do with lawyers, they're, they're, they're kind of spendy. Uh, I've got a bill in there right now for 4000 bucks uh, that I just got. And uh, it adds up over time. So uh, we, we can't live high on the hog because the lawyers do. So that's one expense we have to deal with. Now, if we're to prepare a small place, and there's one scripture that says after people get here, they'll say there's not enough room. We need more room. God gave us enough land, I believe, to barely handle what is to come. 
But it won't be for long. He does say that Jerusalem will be built as towns without walls. He says he'll build seven uh, churches in the wilderness and probably uh, they'll have different accommodations. So, at any rate, uh, we're here and we've got enough dwellings to handle the ones that are here, but it isn't enough to handle seven or eight or ten thousand people by any means in any form. I mean, you could lay them in the hall in the shop over there like cordwood an inch apart, and you couldn't get that many people on the floor. Have to hang some from the wall, I guess, and it's slanted. So, no, there's no way we can take care of that many people currently. And I feel this thing is getting close enough now that we need to make more preparations. And we've got a lot of acres here covered with sagebrush and rabbit brush, and uh, you can't put tents or greenhouses or anything on them. Ross LeBaron wants to start putting up... Now, this is his mission. He thinks that the Mormons are going to come and gather. So he's devised, and he's quite inventive, uh, little greenhouses that you can grow your food in, you can sleep in, and they can even be made where you have a certain amount of privacy. And uh, he can build a composting toilet for less than 50 bucks that works well. He's got a couple of them up there at his place. Now, you can go and buy a commercial composting toilet and pay hundreds, thousands of dollars. But he can make them for under 50 bucks. And he plans on putting some of his ranch land, he's got three ranches left, three big parcels anyway, into little greenhouses with composting toilets that people can grow their own food in and be pretty well self-sufficient, their own vine and fig tree in a plastic house, I guess. But he wants to do that. And he even said that he'd like to start it here. And I said, no, I'd rather see you start it on your land and because if it's going to be Mormons coming, I'd rather they be there. Is kind of what I was implying. I says, but uh, but maybe it would work, because I'm expecting a gathering too. I says, maybe it would work over here as well, but let's start on yours. Because he wants to lease some land over a year or two or three or five and put the greenhouses on when they arrive and, and make it work. Well, I, did, I ran a cost of tents, any kind of a tent you could possibly live in, and for 3,500, 4,000 tents, if you figure two, three people to a tent, uh, we're talking about a million or two million dollars easily. And then you start figuring uh, toilet facilities, and you can talk another million or two real fast, or more. Uh, and even building those greenhouses for the plastic and the metal and the various materials you'd need, you're talking the same kind of money. So today I'd like to ask you to uh, turn in about two, three million bucks if you would. That would help a lot. I jest. But I do, this winter, feel like we should go ahead and run our water lines on up to the far end of the property. They're up three acres north of here now. But we need to clear that land up there. We need to flatten it some. 
Uh, we need to run water lines up there with frost-free faucets every so often, pretty close together, because if you're going to have seven, eight, ten thousand people, they're all going to need water fairly close. I know they carry it two, three miles on their heads in Africa, but I don't want us to have to do that if we can avoid it. So I'd like to do some development, but water pipe, connections, uh, faucets, all cost money. So we'll figure ways to do that kind of thing. But if you send tithes, you send offerings, I want you to know that we're trying to use them for the best use we can to take care of what God, I believe, has brought us here to do. And yes, some of it will go in me. But uh, more of it goes to what we have to do than it does to me by far. Uh, whether it's lawyers or pipelines or fixing pumps, uh, one well over here needs a pump right now. Uh, Nelson and I, or I paid for it, bought a solar pump some years ago that we could put right out here on this well by the chicken house. In case we don't have electric to run a pump, we could run a solar pump and put a tank up there so we could just draw water out of it. And uh, we have another well that we could that's on church property that we need a pump for, and I would also like to get a solar pump for it. Uh, so we have two wells with solar pumps if we need them. So this all costs money, so we'll, we'll figure out how to get it all done. And I'm saying this, I do appreciate your tithes and your offerings. Uh, God tells you to give them, and you do, and I appreciate it. And we will try to use it for God's purposes as best we can. I've seen the excesses and the misuses in the past, and I'm trying to avoid them, and I don't even like to emphasize money at all. And here I sit and talk about it for half hour. But uh, money is important, and we all deal with money, and we all need money, and, and you need it. Uh, so I think it's only fair to you once in a while maybe to say something about it and what our intentions are and tell you that I also have put personal assets in here uh, more than anybody else has, frankly. Uh, Andy Benedetto contributed a lot when he was here. He He's put up the money to put the fence around the place. And uh, he also put up money to help people buy houses that didn't have money to do it, mobile homes. And then they paid him back over time. So uh, there have been those who have contributed, and I certainly have appreciated that, and it's gone a long ways toward doing what we've done. And I appreciate what you're doing and have done. So uh, let that be known. <laughs> I mean, the tithes, offerings that have come in even here at the feast probably will go part of it to help pay lawyers. I would rather tell you that it would go to help put the pipeline in. Some of it may. We'll just work things out and use it the best we can to take care of what needs taken care of, okay? So, is that all I had to say about that? I guess it is, probably. Enough said, and hopefully we won't say much more. Uh, now, well, let me address just a little more. We've been involved since January of '07 in doing some digging because I saw those scriptures about the Cyrus, and I didn't know what to do with them. And then 
one day on the last two or three days of 06 in December, here comes this fellow to the door uh, looking for me. I wanted to know if I was the pastor. He has a lisp. And uh, so I admitted it. And uh, we talked. And he wanted to show me some things. Well, I'll probably talk about this more a little later on, but some of us volunteered to start digging out a pre-dug, refilled shaft that we thought might go under what he showed us looked like Jerusalem. And I believe to this day that it is the right site. And we spent a lot of time up there uh, digging and spent a lot of gas money back and forth and even bought some tools and various things. And I look at it as an archaeological dig. been doing some more up at his other ranch in uh, Schoonapah, which I think is very promising. And I think that this will hit soon. I don't know how soon, but soon. And we'll not probably have whatever millions we need to finish developing this. And that's one reason I think it's going to be soon, because if this gathering's got to be fairly soon, we've got to have a way to take care of people. I mean, not just for eight days, but food, water, bathrooms, people got needs, and they have to be filled. So, hearkening back to Worldwide, Herbert Armstrong sent people over to the Middle East on archaeological digs to try to uncover the things of God there. They haven't found any yet, and those digs have stopped. We've been doing the same thing here. There's precedent for it, even in the end-time church. But I think we're very close to discovering some things that are very, very important. Already have discovered some things that are important. So uh, that has required a certain amount of money and a lot of energy and time, for sure. But I don't think it's been wasted. I really don't. I think that God intended it, and we've we've not worked in vain. So... That is eaten up some, too. All right, now, don't have a whole lot of time left. Do I have time to get in the other thing I loathe talking about? actually thinking. Uh, We need to understand, as I said at the very beginning here, our calling and what we're here to do. Now, I've been covering part of that in going through called and calling and so on. And we've seen many places there where uh, he says that we must be holy There were a purchased people. I could go to Isaiah 52, about verse, what is it, 12, 13, 14, somewhere down there, where it says, Be ye clean who bear the vessels of the eternal. So if we are to do the work of God, our first level of understanding needs to be what we need to be. And I've been covering that in several sermons, really, just by going through called and calling. And when it says you're called, it'll tell you what for and what you're supposed to be to do it. 
And in each case, it's to be clean or to be holy or to be obedient and to be like Christ. So there's your number one responsibility if you want to be part of the end time work. And that's what Christ said there in Revelation 3 to Laodicea, which we all became a part of. And that is that he wants us on fire and full of zeal. He wants us to put him first and worship him with all our hearts, as many places in the prophets say. So the first condition is spiritually. To put yourself through the fire. He said he'd put us through the fire and prepare us and get us ready. So if you're going to work for him, you need to be prepared, right? Uh, You look through, and I covered that quite a bit extensively, how God prepared Noah and how he prepared Abraham and he prepared Moses ahead of time to do the job that they had to do. Do you think that he is not now preparing people for the biggest work that has ever been to finish this out? That's his M.O., That's his past. That's his pattern. It's what he's always done. He doesn't just walk up to somebody on the street and say, uh, I've got a big end time work I want done. Uh, Wish you'd come do it for me. Not the way he works. He prepares people ahead of time. He's been preparing you, most of you now, for decades to get you spiritually ready to be a part of what he is about to do. Some of you are younger, and he's preparing you now as well. You're listening, you're hearing, you've got the same opportunity to overcome and grow as us old people who still haven't done enough of it have. Space to repent. Space to get ourselves prepared so that we can be of use to him. Now... Maybe I have time to sort of get into this a bit, and maybe even finish. I don't know. It depends on how it goes. But why am I here? How did I get here? Now, here you are, and I'm talking to you, and you're listening to me. And there have been people who came here who listened and then left. There are people who came here and listened and now are enemies. So... Maybe you need to know the whole story. Maybe it would be worth our while to go through it. Uh, Because if you're thinking of quitting jobs, moving, uh, have the information you need to make a decision based on that. Why do these people hate me today? Why do we have lawsuits? What's going on here? Oh, poor Anatot. How did he get this way? Now, I don't like to talk about myself. That's what I was hinting at. I try not to do that very often. I try to give you this word, and we go through the Bible, mostly all the time. That's what we do. And I think that's what we ought to do. But then I got thinking, I wasn't going to go here at all this morning. I had these points about what our calling is and what God wants done that I was going to go through, and I prayed about it, and then first thing you know, I I began to think, maybe these people, because I've just been reminded yesterday, somebody might want to decide to move out of here. So I began to think this morning, do they know what they're getting into? How can they evaluate? 
How can they make that decision if they don't have a better grasp, maybe, of what's going on? So I got to thinking about Herbert Armstrong, and he spent two whole books this thick talking about himself. Uh, took a lot of time to write those books. He went clear back to his youth. He went through all his experiences in business and everything about his life. Now, it all pertained to the work and what God was calling him to do, but he felt that people ought to know about his past, maybe learn some lessons from it, and there's some great ones in there. But he thought it was worthwhile to spend two whole books just talking about the beginnings of the work and how it came to be and how he got there and what he did once he was there and the ups and downs of it all. So I got to thinking about that and I thought, you know, I give people bits and pieces here and there. I'll recount something from the past once in a while, but I don't. I've never really got given the whole story. So if you're here and God got you somehow here, he got me here too. But I'm in that sense more responsible because it was listening to some of the sermons I gave that got most of you here. And some of those who have left, it was those same sermons that got them here, and now they're not here. And of course, they all blame me for all of that. Now, how much of that am I responsible for? Probably some of it. But how much of it? All of it? They think all of it. So, let's go back, and I'll sort of give you an autobiography here. may not be able to finish it. It's 75 years long so far. But the broadcast uh, was coming over XCG and XELO Mexico back in the early 50s, and my uncle began to listen to it and began to take the plain truth probably in 50 or 51, somewhere along there. And then he began to talk to my parents about it, uh, probably in 52, and we began to listen. Because I know that their first Feast of Tabernacles was 53 in Big Sandy. It's the only place you could go uh, at that time. And they were baptized uh, at Passover in Big Sandy in 54. So we'd been listening for some time, and I was in 52, I was eight years old. Uh, but I had an interest. We'd just come out of the Methodist Church once we began listening to these things, and my uncle would come over every Friday night, and usually on Sabbath afternoon as well, to discuss prophecy and discuss scriptures and discuss the booklets and the plain truth and so on. And I started taking the correspondence course. I think I couldn't have been more than nine or ten years old, and I'm up there on Sabbath writing that whole thing out. You know the, you know the drill. You had to write the question, and then you had to write the answer, and you had to write out all the scriptures. And I did that whole thing probably by the time I was 10, 11 years of age. Wrote it all out. So I was interested, okay? Uh, it wasn't just something my parents were doing. I, I was buying into it. Uh, this the church it seemed exciting to me the work seemed exciting to me and then we had some students on their way to the feast one year that came and spent the night at our house on their way to Big Sandy because 
I guess they'd check the list to see who lived where, and they didn't have any money for motels, so they were looking for members to stay with. Carl McNair was one of them, I remember, uh, still as a student at that time. And uh, so I was excited about it. Well, uh, they were baptized in 54, and we went down uh, Pentecost, I mean Passover, Pentecost, and the feast, all three feast seasons. We went to Big Sandy. They held the Passover, I mean the uh, Pentecost, a few years up in Estes Park, Colorado, and had a tent there at the web, on the Webster's land up in that area. Herbert Armstrong would be there for Pentecost, and then he'd be down Big Sandy for Passover and the feast. So we went up there, I think, two or three times uh, to Estes Park, beautiful place. <coughs> well, somewhere along there, uh, my aunt, wife of the uncle who was involved with the church, was still a Methodist. And she began to go over, we were in West Texas, Seminole, and she'd go over to La Mesa, La Mesa, 40 miles away, <coughs> and visit with this soothsayer. And uh, she talked my mother into going with her once. Well, then they started going over there, I think, I don't remember for sure, about every week. <coughs> and I would go along. I wasn't allowed inside, thank God. Though I'd sit out on the fence or go walk down the street or whatever. But that must have been in like 57. And mom got going over there every week. And then she kind of went nuts. Uh, I was the eldest of five. And they didn't have any more until five years later. My brother was the second oops. But then they came into the church and uh, realized that you're supposed to have your quiver full. So they had three just as rapidly as you can have them. Uh, seemed like a new one started within weeks of, well, maybe it wasn't quite that, but she had one every year for three years. And uh, it took a toll on her health <laughs> quite a bit. And then the soothsaying made it worse. Well, I think a combination of her health being a little uh, weak at that point and the Satanism that comes through a soothsayer, a fortune teller, uh, created a situation that Satan used. A mom used to study her Bible diligently every day. I mean, mom, she got her Bible study in in those early years. And one night when I was 14 in 1958, had to have been in the springtime, uh, it came to a head. A few days leading up to it, we, she had the latest baby, uh, named her Diva Teresa. Dr. Hay later told us that Diva was a, a, uh, a demon from India. How he knew all those, I don't know, but that's what he said. Neighbor Diva Teresa, and I noticed a few days before things came undone, the mom would be laying on bed and she'd be basically unresponsive. Her eyelids would flitter, but she wouldn't answer. 
And then, once that started, a few days later, Dad hollers in the middle of the night, and Mom had been studying the Bible late, and it was open to Matthew, where it says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, or if your right arm offends you, or your right hand offends you, cut it off. Now, she was right-handed, but she had her Bible open to that spot, and had been reading it, obviously, and she took a common butcher knife, kitchen knife, with her left hand and cut her right hand off. Found the joint perfectly. Because it's not easy if you've not cut hooves off of a lot of animals. It's not easy to find that joint, even on an animal. Very difficult. you got to know what you're doing. If you miss it, you can hack and hack and hack and never get it. Well, she found it first time perfectly, I think guided by a demon. And it was hanging by a little sliver of flesh. Dad hollered for me, I was 14, came running in there, and there's my mom bleeding all over the kitchen. He's trying to control her, and the two of us together didn't have enough strength, and she was only 4'10 and a half, to uh, subdue her. And he was trying to keep the hand from dropping clear off with that little piece of flesh that it was hanging by, bone completely cut. And he had me looking up the number, scared to death and shaking all over, I'm sure, uh, to get an ambulance, which I somehow managed. And they took her uh, in. But my mom, at that point, had become not only demon-influenced, but I think demon-possessed at that point in her life. I think God was trying, I mean, Satan was trying to destroy the family uh, very clearly. And, of course, little town of Seminole, 5,000 people, didn't take long for that story to get around with these, these people who were already looked down upon as Sabbath keepers and feast keepers. Didn't take that long to get around. Dad was in business there in town. But anyway, she lived. Didn't, she lost the hand. And uh, there's tens of thousands of people that know that because it went all over the church as well, of course. Church wasn't very big then, but it got bigger and bigger. And we... So the upshot of it was, <coughs> I started high school that year in Seminole, and when we went to the feast, we just moved to Big Sandy, stayed there. So I got almost four years of imperial school. There was no college there then in 58, but they did have a high school and grade school for people in the church. Imperial <coughs> school which I doubt I'd have gotten to Ambassador College if I hadn't had. Uh, if I'd have been in a public school through my high school years, there ain't no telling what I'd have been by then. But I went to Imperial School, and uh, they put a lid on it, <laughs> thankfully. So, four years there in uh, Big Sandy, getting some training, and uh, then they accepted me into college, which I wanted to go. <coughs> And uh, I guess I did fairly well there. Uh, I wound up being salutatorian, I think, in my senior year. There was a gal named, there named Mignon Newton. I called her Filet Mignon. But, uh, oh, she had brains. 
I mean, you know, Dr. Hay used to tell us to go read such and such to come back to class. He said, well, it's written in ancient Syrian, but uh, you'll figure it out. He could. You know, I was just struggling to get through Spanish class. And to read these ancient languages? No way. Mignon could. She was that smart. So, anyway, I wasn't very bright, but I I listened. <laughs> and uh, and the professors knew me, and that helped. Uh, I was friendly with them. And I got my work in on time, so I think those things helped. But anyway... Uh, I'm leading up to some things here. I was kept on the janitor crew for nearly two and a half years because they thought I needed to be humbled. Uh, some of the other guys got to go to uh, the mail department, read the letters and recommend booklets and all that, and I'm out there cleaning toilets. And probably it was a good thing. And they finally... You know, I was almost on the sermon let list before I got off the janitor crew. It's a strange thing. But I finally got that promotion. Well, anyway, beginning of the junior year, I was made junior class president. And usually if you were raised to that level as a student, that meant they had some aspirations to use you in the work in some way, probably the ministry ultimately. At the beginning of that year, I had a very startling dream. Didn't know what to do with it, but it was startling. It was technicolor, it was vivid, it wasn't like my normal dreams, which are a hodgepodge of whatever, like yours are, generally. But in that one, it was very clear, and it said... If you go into the ministry, you will die. You'll be a martyr. Is this acceptable to you? And I said, yes. In the dream. About a week or two later, whatever it was, uh, one of the ministers asked me to go down to San Diego and lead songs. And then the next speaking list that came out, I was given a sermonette in Los Angeles with probably 600 people there and Rod Meredith sitting on the front row writing all the way through it giving me a grade. He always graded sermonettes. You got an A or an F or a C or whatever at the end of your sermonette. I got a B minus, which I thought with him was, hey, I did pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was A plus, but he thought B minus and probably the congregation thought, why did they have this guy come give a sermonette anyway? Uh as junior class president, well, they had a rule in college that you weren't supposed to get involved romantically until the second half of your senior year. You were supposed to time it so at the end of the first semester, you could go pick somebody out and fall in love and get married by the time you graduated in June. Kind of ridiculous. And... uh some of the student leaders I've noticed over the years went ahead and had a girl picked out a year, year and a half, two years ahead of time, and nothing was said. But the rest of us were told, don't do that. 
Of course, they were told to do that too, but they did it anyway. Well, anyway, uh, what time is it? I might have time to get this in. When we first moved to Big Sandy in 58, uh, hadn't been there very long until a school teacher, Norval Pyle, invited our family over to uh, for dinner. And on the mantel were pictures of his, some of his daughters, and they were married to ministers. Uh, two or three of them. And then there was one there at home that was in the seventh grade, and I was in the ninth grade. And she looked like one of her sisters, a lot like her. And I thought, uh, well, her sister's married ministers, and I'd like to be a minister someday. I'm going to marry her. Cute little gal. And uh, so I had a thing for her off and on all through four years of high school. We never actually got real tight, but but it, it kept coming and going. Let's put it that way. Uh, and then when I went to college, she was two years behind. In my first year in college, she was, was one that was on my mind, even though there were girls running around all over the place. I kind of set my heart on her. And then at the beginning of my junior year, her freshman year, uh, we began to go on walks and so on and began to get pretty close. And we're even talking that way. About then, Ted Armstrong gave a forum to the students and reminded us the rules. Don't you get interested and have a romance till the second half of your senior year. Well, this was the beginning of my junior year. And I'd ask her to go to my first sermon at it, by the way. Uh, so we went for a walk, and we said, we better follow the rules. So we quit seeing each other. And meantime, there was a girl who was somewhat older. She had, was a year ahead of me in college. She's two years older. And we sang in the corral together, and I had some friends, you know, just girls that were friends. She had a great personality and so on. And uh, yet she was a senior. Well, she got interested in me, and I was just a junior. So she goes to Loma Armstrong and says, I'm interested in Daryl Henson. She says, is it okay? I'm a senior. He's still just a junior, so we, you know. She says, well, uh, okay. And then the evangelist okayed it, since she was already there, or almost there. So it was kind of a rebound situation. Well, next year I was appointed student body president and... Ted Armstrong brought me in because Terry, the one I married, uh, had graduated. And he said, do you want to go ahead and get married? Because we were engaged. <clears throat> I said, no, because Dick Ames had been the student body president the year before. He was married and off campus, and he had hardly any contact with the students. And I says, no, if I'm going to do this job, uh, I want to be here with the students. So he says, well, how about we send her to Big Sandy to teach school uh, then? 
I said, well, that'd be okay. She had a college bill, and she worked full-time teaching. Uh, if I helped her with her management, she could get it paid off, which happened. Well, here was this other girl that I'd been interested in since the ninth grade still on campus. And I began to realize that my real affection all the way back, at least is what you can do at age 20, 21, was with her. And I'm thinking, how can I marry this one when my mind has always been and has come back to the other one? This was a real dilemma for me. Well, about then, Herbert Armstrong wrote a letter to all the students because somebody had broken a girl's heart. And he knew that girl. Now, he knew the one that I was engaged to as well. And when she was in Bricky Wood in England, uh, she went shopping all the time with Loma Armstrong. Even when they were back in Pasadena, she'd kind of got, they'd gotten to be friends and she'd go shopping with Loma Armstrong. So, uh, she knew Mr. Armstrong fairly well. Well, he wrote this letter about this guy that had broken a girl's heart. And I mean, he went on for several pages about how anybody that did that was worthless and couldn't be used in the work and wasn't even Christian and he used the word cad, which, uh, was even to me an archaic word at that time. Uh, jerk, maybe, would be modern equivalent. Uh, he went on and on for four or five pages, and I'm in this dilemma. So I read that thing a hundred times and prayed and prayed about it and beat my head on the wall, and I finally says, no, uh, I can't do this. So... I decided to go ahead and get married anyway. Well, the girl that I had been interested in all those years, they decided to ship to England for the, her next year of college. She was on the plane flying to England at the time, actually on the plane flying when I got married. And that's all I could think about. It was done out in the garden. Herbert Armstrong did the ceremony. His wife was sitting right here beside me. And I'm looking at my shoes, <clears throat> thinking about a girl on an airplane. And that's not really good circumstance to be married in. Anyway, Loma Armstrong notices. She says, look at her, Daryl. Look at her. She's walking in the garden. I couldn't do it. So we went ahead and got married. And she was a lovely girl. She's a wonderful person, uh, converted intelligent, capable, uh, nothing wrong with her. Made an excellent wife, and that went on for 17 years. But I did love her, and yet there was a certain resentment there. It took me three years to get past that situation with the other girl. I beat my head on the wall on the toilet one night after three years of dealing with it. I took a long walk and prayed for several hours and it went away. But the resentment remained there, uh, and it affected our relationship to one degree or another. And this went on for years while I was in the ministry. <coughs> and it got to where it was distracting me from doing it right 
And my life began to kind of go out of control there. It was kind of that way for about six years. And in 1981, I went to Mr. Armstrong to tell him the story. But he didn't even want to hear it. Ah, you're married. He says, no big deal. He didn't even listen. I didn't even get to tell the story. Because he wanted to tell me about his successor. That's what he had on his mind. That's what we talked about the whole time. That's when he told me he was Zerubbabel. So I went home dealing with it. And then for two more years, and I said, I've either got to leave the ministry or get this resolved. Because I can't do both. So I went to him again in 83. This time he listened. Told him the whole story. Told him about him writing the letter. And how I had read it and gone over it and decided i got to go through with this regardless of anything because it's the Christian thing to do. He says, well, why didn't you come to me? I says, well, I was a scared student wanting to be used in the work student body president, and me getting in trouble and being called a cad wouldn't have helped the student body. There were a lot of factors going on, and I said, I just couldn't do it. I figured I better go ahead and do what I was. It said I'd do, regardless. So I did. And he says, well, you defrauded her. She never had a chance at a real marriage. I said, well, and he apologized for his part in it. He says, I helped the fraud along, but he says... She never had a chance at a real marriage because of the resentment you felt. And I says, well, I have to agree with you. I, I, I couldn't give her everything. Tried, but I couldn't do it. We raised three kids fairly successfully, too. But I got to the point where my life was getting out of control. Uh, and it was that way for a few years. And I just realized I can't be a minister. I can't be the way I am in this marriage situation the way it is and continue. So I'm going to go to him. I'm going to get this story out. <clears throat> if he fires me or I need to quit, okay. I cross that bridge. So he said, well, he says, I'm going to have to put you out of the ministry and out of the church for fraud. I said, well, okay. I said, guilty. It was me that did it, even though you might have had something to do with it. It's still me that did it. And then he said something encouraging. He says, now, I want her to go. He says, this marriage is annulled. He says, I want you to get divorced legally with the state. But he says, I'm annulling it because from the very beginning, it was fraud. When you stood there and married her and were thinking about somebody else, that was fraud. I said, well, I have to agree. So he said, all right, it's annulled. He told her, I want you to go date and find somebody to marry. And he told me, I want you to do the same thing. He said, and then when you get your life straightened out, he says, I want you back in the ministry. Which was a shock to me at that point. I'd just been fired and kicked out of the church, in fact. So, or we begin to realize what kind of a character you got here. But anyway, uh, we did that. And she never accepted 1 Corinthians 7 about if you have an unconverted mate or whatever. 
uh, or adultery or whatever the things that were discussed in 1 Corinthians 7. <coughs> she never accepted that decision, and my parents didn't either, nor did any of my family. They still think to this day, the ones that are still alive, that I'm married to the first wife. Didn't accept Herbert Armstrong's decision on it. <coughs> Terry used to hang on every word, my first wife, that Herbert Armstrong said until that day. She still uses my surname to this day and uh, thinks she's still married to me. I don't think so, uh, and Mr. Armstrong doesn't think so or didn't. But anyway, uh, I was out of the ministry and out of the church then for, or out of the ministry for 12 years, not out of the church that long, only a, maybe, I don't know, remember now, year or two, and allowed back in but not to the ministry. In the meantime, he died on me. He'd said, I want you back in the ministry, and he died on me. And so he couldn't bring me back. Earl Romer was trying to up in Alaska, but uh, by then I had a reputation throughout the ministry and throughout the church, and uh, the Tkachas didn't want me. Thank God, at this point. But uh, that didn't happen. And I enjoyed those 12 years. The, the weight and the responsibility of the ministry, even though I'd wanted to be in it, was uh, pretty heavy. And those 12 years were like a breath of fresh air. I could go out and do my own thing and make my own money. And I had 12 years respite from the responsibility and the weight and everything that goes with that. And we're out of time, so I'll stop there and we'll pick this up again. But... I, I'm, I'm driving to some things here that led to what we have here today. And I think that it's important to maybe fill this in so that we might understand what's here and why it's here. That's the point of all this, even though there's a lot of detail that might not seem to fit. But I think in a way it does come all together because I think God was working all those years to get me here. And I want you to know what I went through to get here so that we can understand what is here and why it is the way it is today. And do we want to continue this or would you rather bow out, <laughs> uh, depending on the answers to those questions. So uh, perhaps it's good we do it even though it's about me. I, I don't like to talk about myself. I'd rather talk about God's Word. But sometimes I think... We need to know who's talking to us, why they're talking to us, and how they got there. Uh, I do think that's important. So let's stop there for today.